you know. Um, so yeah, almost all companies of that uh, generation. I mean, look, I, I failed. I got in a, in a battle with World Industries and a lawsuit because I made fun of them for doing what they did to everybody, and that's mm -hmm. steal trademarks and mm -hmm. so on and so forth. And they mm -hmm. sued me for for defamation, slander, whatever the hell it was, for, for calling wet willy, wet wussy, and mm -hmm. you know, I mean, it was just ridiculous. And it, I, I never, I, the lawsuit was settled for nothing, mm -hmm. but uh, I countersued them, and obviously, kind of, I think I neutralized that, because I probably could have won money from them. I know mm -hmm. I could have. They did a lot of very evil stuff, but, mm -hmm. um, but they, they fizzled off, but I lost a lot of money. That's why I ended up converting into an OEM manufacturer instead of a branded guy. So basically, okay. my brands got knocked off the shelf. Right. You know, so I disappeared. Paul Schmidt sold off Giant Distribution. That failed. Whaley and Workshop was sold to Burton Snowboards. They couldn't do anything with it, and they spiraled it up, sold it back to Rob Deerdick, who then mm -hmm. licensed it to someone else, and that failed, and he took it back. And now he had, it was like, mm -hmm. and now it's back in the hands of one of the original owners. Like, almost all these things. Element was bought by Billabong. You know, mm -hmm. it's it's went up and it's went down with you know the 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 markets of what you know a lot of that stuff sector nine was bought by billabong and and they rode the way for a few years and then they they, they bought them for like 30 or 40 million dollars and they sold them for 12 million dollars a couple years ago mm -hmm. so now they're in the hands of bravo who makes all it's all china stuff so i think okay. sector nine's factory has been shelved and shut down okay. all the employees laid off now it's just an office where all the stuff's imported from china so it's just a warehouse and, uh, it's just a, a warehouse probably you know, I, actually i think you know it it's an office you know what's oh, that Red Bull? oh no that was all taken out yeah that's no that's again that's that corporate suck the soul out of it and uh mm. you know um yeah how, it's, how it's do you how do you because i've know i know a few people that own skateboard companies of different sizes the thing about you that to me is different is that you seem to still love skateboarding well and that's if i was sorry to say this, sometimes I'm the proudest thing i have about myself going through like in the skateboard industry and literally having a hundred employees selling millions of dollars and stuff and then losing pretty much everything I own, houses, everything, you know, you know, I'm most proud that I still love skateboarding because skateboarding is still fun. I, you Why? Know, Why is um, it still fun? Because when I go to a skate park and I drop in that bowl and I carve and I grind, just like you can't take that feeling away from me. Just because I lost money selling the thing I'm riding, it doesn't mean that it's no longer fun. The, the, and the difference is, for a lot of the guys, a lot of the, as the skateboarders started the companies, pretty much all of them stopped skateboarding. I know. You know, yeah. um, I never stopped skateboarding. I always had a How mini ramp at work. Um, I would just find time. I'm going to stop and smell the roses, dude. I don't know where I learned that from, but it's like if I have to deliver something today, I'm going to stop somewhere and look at a new business that opened up, a, a fountain at a shopping center, uh, a garden somewhere like that, because I, there's, there's so much beautiful, awesome stuff around us. Yeah. I, you have to find it. Because if you just ignore it all day long, all your day, your, your life passes you by. So it when can't I was be in my, all work. It can't be all work. When I was in my 20s, I never looked at the sunset. Now, almost every night when I see the sun setting, I'm looking to see if I'm going to see a beautiful sunset or not. I take the time to go outdoors, watch. Like, maybe it comes with time and appreciation. Um, but as far as skateboarding, um, I'm fortunate enough that I'm naturally talented enough to be pretty good at a skateboard. Yeah. But never was I committed enough to be like a top 10 guy. Mm -hmm. Even though there was a time I think my talent level was there. Okay. I couldn't be bothered because my mind was always, I had business thoughts, I had other things. I had, you know, you had when a lot I was of interest. When I was 23, I started a company with Larry Balma, who owned Tracker and Transworld. Mm -hmm. We started a company called Brainstorm Designs. Because okay. I'm like, I'm not going to be just a guy who works for you in the warehouse or like that. If you want to do this, we formed this corporation. and we, we, I sold the ads for Transworld, helped start Transworld Snowboarding Magazine, mm -hmm. you know, made their Tracker Wheel program. I just did all sorts of stuff. I've, I've always, my mind is always going into Fast. a lot of things mm -hmm. um, for whatever reason. Reason, uh, I always thought, you know, I can do things. And people go, well, what makes you think you can? I go, I don't know, what makes you think you can't? Look around you. That, how'd that guy get this? How'd that guy mm -hmm. do that? So I went for it and it worked. You know, the Acme thing was very successful, um, you know, until I got sued 
And unfortunately, like I said, I didn't lose the money in the lawsuit. I lost the money because I sold primarily to distributors. Mm -hmm. And the distributors would all be like, dealers are afraid to buy your product because they hear you're going out of business hmm. because World Industry is suing you. Mm -hmm. And like, well, where are they hearing I'm going out of business? Well, the world rep said, have you heard that Acme's out of business? We keep hearing, but we can't confirm it. It's like spreading rumors. Oh. You know, it's like uh, you spread rumors to enough people, eventually someone's gonna come up to you and go, hey, I kind of heard this, is this true? Well, right. well, unfortunately, you got guys in shops in, in Indiana and Kansas City, whatever like that, going, hey, Jack, did you hear Acme's out of business? Like, no, I didn't hear that. Hey, Phil, did you hear that? So you're just like, you're spreading rumors. And so I, I, the bulk, Sales I'd ship to distributors are going, dealers are afraid to buy your products. So, so my sales went from like five million to like three million in a year. Wow. And I had said close to a hundred employees. I lost almost a million dollars. You know, um, and I again I didn't have any partners, any investors, or that was my seven years of growing and investing in more, and we lived off the inventory while we were gasping and gagging before we could, you know, move everything into new buildings. And um, I never filed bankruptcy. I negotiated with people and paid a lot of money back to people that otherwise wouldn't have got paid if I did. And um, I tried to do everything as honorably as I could, but um, I, you just couldn't, couldn't hold on. So that stopped us basically as a brand converted to an OEM manufacturer, which let us hold on. But then the China thing came and hit that. And again, I was one of the only people who stood up and I got a group together. I had the only meeting that was ever held at my wood shop with Paul Schmidt, Jerry Madrid, Brad Dorf, and George Powell, everybody who made skateboards, Dykemas, were like that, trying to get everybody. Because this is a time when Girl and some of these guys, they were all importing all these Chinese boards. Yeah. None of them were labeled made in China. And it just pissed me off. It's like, okay, make boards in China, but fucking put made in China. Yep. Because right now, you're selling them for the same price as our American-made yep. boards, and if kids know they can get a good board versus one that's gonna snap in half that was made in China, yep. they're gonna buy it. But they got away with it for two or three years before anyone ever started labeling anything. So nobody and they, called them and nobody, nobody called them legally. And I was trying yeah. to get these guys together and go, why don't we all just pitch $1,000 and there's 20 of us. Yeah. At least they would, let's, hire, let's hire a lawyer and let's at least get a letter sent out to girl. Let's get a letter sent out to you know, some of these guys that are, that are importing you know, boards and not labeling. World Industries was starting. You know, they, for two or three years, they didn't label their boards coming from China. Mm -hmm. you know, um, and unfortunately, once kids all had been buying the China stuff for a few years mm -hmm. and the American guys were dying in the background, it didn't. It became like no big deal. No one cares. But there was a window when there was some sort of hope, and I did get everyone together and tried to start a movement. And um, I tried to start a thing called the American Skateboard Manufacturing Association, where they as <laughs> what was it called? The oh my god, ASBMA, American Skateboard Manufacturing Association. Yeah, like I tried to get and, and guys that was, to, and that was you know, in order um, to get people to uh, an alliance. An alliance to, and actually an awareness, because let's yeah. face it, you can't, you know, the sad reality is you could, you could go into, a, and to this day, a skate shop, some skate shops buy a board from like Watson Lamets and put it on their shelf and still $10 less than in a Chinese board that's coming in from Santa Cruz or whatever like that. And, yeah. and they don't know it and they don't yeah. know the difference and uh, um, just, I don't know, but, but again, it was that, the deviousness of the skateboard industry. They, I guarantee you, they were laughing at me behind my back, you know, oh, Jim Gray thinks he's going to like shut us down. I mean, mm. you know. Um, now this meeting you refer to is, I heard about some meeting where supposedly the heads of all the skateboard companies got together about an alliance not to go to China and literally the next day they all had booked flights to go to China. And well, that may, that may have been it because I was, you know, again, I was the spearhead of that one trying okay. to get it to happen. I found out within weeks that, you know, Bearback was moving to Mexico, Paul Schmidt moved to Mexico, you know, and China and, uh, and you know, different, just the guys were dropping like flies out of yeah. that room, you yeah. know. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, like I said, you know, I'm way too straightforward. 
I've always been open and honest with people. Certain people I've had great relationships like George Powell. I could always have a conversation with George and he'd be honest with me. Yeah. If business is shitty, he'll tell me, yeah, business is kind of shitty. And, and I'd tell him the same. And uh, how is this going, that going? You know, if I talked to, you know, Bob Zanike at NHS, I knew he'd be blowing smoke up my ass. Mm. You know what I mean? I knew he'd be like telling me, oh, we're way. killing it here. And yeah, uh, well, even if they're not, you know what I mean? Because they just don't. Uh, they don't uh, tell the truth. Yeah, they don't, they don't tell, or they don't, they, don't, they don't want you to know the truth because they always think you're going to be able to use it against them or like that. My thing is like, we're in it together. I think your marketing, your, your sales techniques, your team, all that stuff adds up to whether someone wants your product or not. You really should be able to talk to someone in the skateboard industry about things that, that benefit skateboarding uh, right. you know, as a group because it benefits you all. But for some reason, it just the guys can never do it. You know? right. I mean, one thing I helped get done, which I was really proud of, mm -hmm. is when I um, was on the IASC board, I kept always after them about, we need to do something to promote skate parks because all these skate parks are going to get built and, uh, and the only way they get built is when a parent, an advocate, a skater starts getting on the city and really promotes it. And we need to help mm -hmm. educate those people. That's the only way it's going to get done in your town. Just don't just sit around and wait. And, mm -hmm. you know, um, and meanwhile, a group called Skaters for Public Skate Parks started up. Okay, mm -hmm. I knew about them because, again, I was a guy in the industry who still skated, who still yeah. paid attention to what was going on yeah. online. Yeah. I was communicating with some of those guys. Right. Um, and then... Some of those guys who didn't know me in their little bulletin board started talking shit like, what's the eyes? What the fuck are they going to make a skateboard guide for? We've been out here working to do all this stuff. And I had to, and I just immediately jump in and go, first thing, shut your fucking mouth. Yeah. Like, you don't even know what the fuck you're talking about. I've been trying to get the industry to do something for years. Mm -hmm. You guys didn't even exist. Then I hear from my buddy Tom Miller up in Portland. They're starting this thing called Skaters for Public Skate Parks. I think it's awesome. You guys set up this amazing organization. So... Why don't we do something together? I go, we as the industry need to help make skateboards, but our industry doesn't even know you guys exist. Yeah. I do. Right. So right. I brought them sort of to the industry and say, hey, there's this awesome organization. Mm -hmm. You know, they have like a Midwest guy, an East Coast guy, with people, advocates that help people do stuff, um, but they're not funded. You know, we're the guys who have funding and yes. we're the ones who have the benefit from it. Yeah. So ultimately, we coordinated um, and we got we made the public skate park development guide, which is like a hundred page book oh, okay. that was mostly written by the skaters for public skate parks. Okay. I asked, distributed it, and we got Tony Hawk Foundation to pay for it. Okay. You know, so I was really proud of that because most times in skateboarding, people just fought about shit. NorCal, SoCal, <laughs> no, if you're going to do it, I'm not behind you. You're going to do a trade show, I'm not going. You're doing it. You know, so this was like, no, how about Tony Hawk Foundation benefits because they raise money for skateboarding. Um, it, it, the whole thing really is about Tony Hawk being a, an ambassador. He's able to raise money and give it back. It's really great for him. Yep. But they weren't set up really as an organization that really lobbied the cities to build skate parks. They just took the cities that were already building skate parks, helped contribute, so on and so forth. But the heart and soul was there, and so was the image and reputation. And we knew that if we needed to fund this thing from IASC, I think Transworld or someone offered to, to print it. or they said, oh, maybe Nike will sponsor. No, once you put a sponsorship on it, it's no longer pure. Even if it's written properly, people are going to look at it and say, oh, no, Oh, that's the, that's their agenda, or that's their agenda. Mm -hmm. Plus, the Skaters Public Skate Parks guys didn't want anyone to push their agenda on them. Mm -hmm. So the awesome way the collaboration came out was they wrote it, IS promoted it, and Tony Hawk Foundation wrote the check for fifteen grand, wrote it like that to print them all. Okay. You know what I mean? And then it was put on websites and say, hey, you just pay the postage, we'll mail it to you for free. Thousands of copies were sent out there. Second generation was sent out there. I mean, I think it's awesome. Like Peter Whitley, who actually at the time worked for Skaters for Public Skate Parks, was later hired by the Tony Hawk Foundation. Now he runs the Tony Hawk Foundation. Oh, wow. You know, so um, those so are those are things I'm proud of in the background yeah. because that helped yeah. skateboarding. That was real help for skateboarding. Yes. That was put giving someone a tool somewhere sitting in Dubuque, Iowa to read a book about how city councils work and how site planning works and yeah. how you negotiate and battle 
and you know. Did you get into um, specifics on even design on a design level, or just the, the, there were there were some, but I mean honestly, skate skate parks have so much longer to go. I'm a big skate park critic. Yeah. Because what's wrong with uh, skate parks? Well, I'm a big skate park. The, here's the primary thing: skate parks in general are designed by skaters for themselves, not the public. Yep. They're designed for Wednesday at 10 a.m. when all the kids are in school because they're empty. Yep. And they literally primarily forget about what the function of a public skate park is, and that is capacity, capacity. to handle a lot of people to have a good time, mm-hmm. and, uh, and safety, and just all these other things, and they literally build their fantasies. You know, I, um, I think you're right. So, yeah. so you take guys that you like, okay, you know, I got a lot of shit for this one park in Anaheim they built, because I could ride the pool, wasn't good. It was okay. But it was something that like Grayson Fletcher's going to kill because he's so good he can ride anything. It's a fast pool. But the 12-year-old kid who comes in and wants to take his first drop-in is going to break his fucking shoulder. Yeah. Because it looks like it's rideable, but it's so pitchy, tranny, and dangerous. The kid's going to like watch all these rippers rip it. The five local kids that kill it, and then one day they're not there. He's going to like come in like after school quietly, drop in. Oh, shattered shoulder. You know, it's like, um, <laughs> yeah. and the thing like. Who is a skate park for? I mean, let's face it, it's public money. If the, if, the, if the public builds tennis courts, who do they build them for? The residents. The who are the residents? The residents are five, the residents are 60. The residents are 14, 25, they're girls, they're males. So you've got to think like, what are these people, what do skateboarders need? Skateboarders need varying degrees of difficulty. Yeah. They need, you know, you know, areas separated from each other so they're not all running into each other. Yeah. Yeah. But the skate park guy thinks like, no, I want to build what I'd build in my own private backyard if I had it so I can just rip around the whole course. And, and, you, and you go, what? The, the park has a capacity of three. I mean, it yeah. needs 50 people to be there. Why yeah. would you build two parks? Like Vista recently opened a skate park, and they had built one huge flow bowl, a pool, and then like a couple other curbs around there. I'm like, this park literally has a capacity of three functioning. You know, it's like, the guarantee if the city, you ask the city, how many people would you like to be there having a good time? Oh, I'm sure it's great for 20 or 30 or, but we well, yeah, 20 people can stand around, yeah. but Wait one person can ride this big, massive flow bowl, um, and, uh, and then one person can ride the pool. And then, then, then even the pool, okay? If you build three pools, build a, little, a, a beginner one, a mid-level one, and then a gnarly one. But you just build one, so you build one with like five foot shallow end with kinks in it and like two and a half feet of verdant pockets that, you know, old guys come in, they get surprised, they throw their back out because they couldn't see that kink that was there, you know? And literally, I, I, I have a terminology, I say making it for the 5%, not the 95%. Yes. Um, and then I've been told, oh, dude, you're a pussy, whatever. Like, well, then well, I went there and skated it, fine. I can adapt, I'm yeah. a decent skateboarder. Yeah. It still bothered me that it was a waste of my energy to have a park that's trying to hurt me rather than trying to let me have a good time. You know, in the old days, when the first skate parks were built, okay, we were on backyard pools. My first pools over the fishbowl, whatever, over the death box, watch the void, the obstacles were like that. Yeah. When we built skate parks, like, I didn't want a death box in my way, you no. know, because. No. Didn't, why, I wanted to go as fast as I could, charging over every pocket and carving every nook and cranny. So when they built the big O capsule, the only obstacle was the channel. And that was, became like, okay, well, I never have to worry about getting killed anywhere else. And if I can find a way to make the other channel, cool. Yep. I didn't go in and go, oh, there's stairs in my way, there's a death box. Oh, they stuck a death pole jabbing out, so maybe <laughs> it'll kill you when you're... But because you're gnarly, you'll be able to avoid it. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and unfortunately... The mentality now is no, make it gnarly, make it for the five percent, because we're gonna make, we're gonna have rad young pros come out of there. We're like, well, in one side of your mouth, you're going, we hate training, we hate the Olympics, we hate all this. 
oh, but then we built this week and have five rad pros come out. Well, is that the goal of a skate park? Cities aren't building skate parks to create pro skateboarders. They're building skate parks for recreation and fun and, and support of the community. So it was well, a complete hypocrisy because cities know nothing about skate parks, so they rely on skate park companies. Skate park companies are completely wrapped up in the politics of skateboarding, the image of skateboarding, the culture, the, culture, the coolness. Yeah. You know, um, and most people are, are afraid to do what's uh, what's good for skateboarding right. um, over what's cool. Right. You know what I mean? So they will sell skateboarding's long term out to stay to stay cool. You know. Um, and it's really, yeah, it, it's you hard. Know, Belmar told me a great, I thought it was a great idea. He said, what they should do is just build one thing at, like, different parks. So if there's a park around here that does not have a skate park, which you guys Yeah. And you just build, like, just a quarter pipe. Oh, I agree. Well, there's some, and this and is, again, place the, just has a this rail. is the rad thing about where these, yeah. these uh, Portland guys were so far ahead of us. We're the industry hub down here doing it. And then the guy, Tom Miller, I told you about, told me about skaters for skate, public skate parks when it started out. You know, started talking about the skate park systems. They were, they were working with Portland to build systems of skate parks. One skate park would just have a skatable path. One skate park would be a full skate park. Okay. One skate park would have a few things. Yeah. But it was the, trying to build skate parks in 19 parks throughout the city, Cheaper. not just one. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, yeah, it less crowded. Oh, I agree. I, I, we, we talked about that here in Costa Mesa. It's hard to implement because then you start getting the paranoia about the liability aspect of it. Oh, it has to be fenced in so we can control everybody oh. and keep them in and out. And, and obviously some of the best skate areas ever are the ones you just roll up, ride, and leave, and no one's bothering it's you. It's crazy because people, you know, my daughter used to play soccer. I mean, people get concussions in soccer every... They do. Skateboarding has, has never, ever, even with as many millions of users it has in the hospital records, I don't think it's ever cracked the top five injuries or whatever like that it's always football and baseball and out soccer and all the mm -hmm. the sports that we um and the funny thing is if you even amplify that your typical kid who plays soccer okay. and i've always tried to sell, tell cities this when you consider a skate park typical kid who plays soccer gets on a team my kids all played soccer they practice once maybe twice a week for an hour then they have a game on saturday yeah okay i'm gonna guess safe to say 90 percent of those kids outside of practice and the game don't go to the park and play soccer you know what I mean? They do not go kick no, the ball don't. all day long. A handful, 10%, maybe 20% during the whole course of a year, but not on any, reg on any regular no. basis. No. Maybe maybe 5% on a regular basis go and kick balls because they're super serious about it, and that's their deal. Mm -hmm. But most, they do their hour, their hour, their game. Right. Done. Field sits empty, nine tenths out of that. You, bring a, you take a skate park, show me any skate park that isn't an absolute piece of crap, there's almost always somebody there, mm -hmm. you know, like Costa Mesa, from the second they unlock it mm -hmm. to every night, please leave, please leave so we can lock it up again. You know, it's like yeah. um, kids who ride skateboards usually ride their skateboard every single day of the week, sometimes for hours every single day of the week. Yeah. So if you take a comparable 13-year-old skateboarder, he might ride his skateboard for 15 hours a week. Absolutely. And a comparable 13-year-old or whatever soccer player plays soccer for three hours a week. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's yeah. like, so you, skateboarding is all, there's a whole different thing. You yeah. know, it's just like surfers. Surfers that are surf, they're dying. They go out surfing every day. They can't yeah. wait to get more. Yeah. Um, there's nothing wrong with team sports. They've got nothing. Hockey, my kids have played hockey, soccer, yeah. you know, baseball, basketball, a little yeah. bit of everything. And it was all good for them yeah. just being on a team, mm -hmm. but n they're not going to do any of it when they're 40 years old or 50 years old. No. I go skateboarding and I'm so stoked that all these guys I grew up with, Pat Noho, 
Salba, Hasoy. I go out there and roll with all these guys that I've known for 40 years. Right. And they're still out there having a great time at the skate park. Right. Most of us have had to adapt to not being as gnarly as we were and so on and so forth. Uh, me more than most. Those guys are still pretty gnarly. I just refuse to go kill myself. Um, but, uh, but we're still enjoying it because you can have... And that's the awesome thing about being... It's about you and your skateboard. Yeah. That's really who you're... you're challenging against i mean yeah. um and get this you're, you're on a baseball team and the kid drops the ball at second base and we're like oh dude billy you lost the game for us he scored like blah, blah, blah. you know a dude falls off his skateboard and was like are you okay and yeah. then a dude does something a little better i say a kid sucks and he does something that's a little better than sucking and everyone's pounding their board on the ground giving him high fives and hooting and howling it's very supportive you and know what um, other sport can you as a beginner go to say costa mesa volcom and have a guy like you or Krishna Soy standing up there in the bowl, and you do a little thing, and you're a little kid, and you guys will help the kids. Absolutely. I, the, my probably best moment in skateboarding in the last few years was one day we were at Huntington Skate Park, me and, me and Jink, Smarty Jimenez, and we're um, rolling around, and we see this, these kids, a couple kids are trying to launch this little quarter pipe in the street course, learn to drop in, and there's this one kid, he's a big kid, and, uh, and he's, he's super scared, and dude, we could like see it, and we stopped everything, and we spent like 40 minutes to get this kid to freaking drop in. <laughs> Held his hands and, and assured him he was going to do it. Right. Went over it 15 times every time he got back up and was kind of slid out and was scared. He was, and we like convinced him until finally he dropped in and rolled in by himself. Oh, well, awesome. he came up to me on Saturday and he just came running up with the biggest smile like, hey, hey, remember me? Like, you know what I mean? <laughs> and it was like, and I'm like, I sure do. And I just, you know, yeah. gave him some love and, I, and the kid's still hanging out at the skate park. And I like, that's really rad to know that there's no agenda there. No. I didn't like tell the kid like I own a skateboard company or I do that. You know, you know, I, you yeah. know. I'm just like, dude, I'm happy. Welcome to our world. Welcome to the joy we found. Yeah. Hopefully, when he's 40 years old, he'll be out there with his kid rolling around the skate park, enjoying how much fun it is. That truly is the best moment in skateboarding I've had in the last five years. Really, and that was literally I don't know if it's Saturday or Sunday because I went both days. He came up to me and I was like, I, I was like. I had like, you know, it was like goosebumps. It was yeah. like awesome, you know. I, I, yeah. This kid's never going to forget that. No, he won't. You know, and that's, that's, uh, huge. that's and, huge. And, and, you know, I'm sure kids have moments like that when they learn how to hit a baseball or catch a baseball. But, I mean, I don't know, man. There's just something different about skateboarding. Mm -hmm. you know, when that, did you uh, get, when did you see the light of skateboarding? Do you remember? Uh, well, it's weird. My brother was the skateboarder. You know, he's about a year and a half older than, than me. And he would, like, walk around the house, you know, imitating I'm Stacy Peralta and blah blah you know like yeah. him and his buddy Rob would like they literally lived in Westminster and they would ride their mopeds to Mount Baldy on a Saturday morning wow. two and a half hour freaking on mopeds wow. to get there and I was like yeah, you guys are kind of crazy. And I rode my, sk <laughs> my skateboard kind of around the neighborhood. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Um, and then finally one day, you know, uh, I said, yeah, I want to go. And I went with them and I went to think Skatopia, you know? Wow. Um, and so, uh, and, but, you know, I skateboard around the neighborhood and I went to Skatopia and it was like, and I liked it. It was this fun. Was like and, 78, um, 79? Some, yeah, somewhere in that range. I mean, I, you know, uh, you know, again, I skated around the neighborhood and, and, but yeah, I'm 78 probably or 77. When I'm was that the first I, skate park you went to? Um, Concrete Wave. That was it. I'm sorry. Concrete Wave was okay, the first one. Then Skatopia uh, opened a couple months after, after that I was going to Concrete Wave. And then, um, then I started really getting into it. So then I was like, those guys are riding the half pipe and I was riding up onto the bricks. And I was, you know, mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. just progressing. And I, I literally had only skateboarded for like probably six, six months to a year before I got sponsored. You know? Oh. So, uh, what was the first sponsor? Uh, I was sponsored by Pro-Am. Oh wow! You know, yeah. yeah, you guys so, have this brown and yellow. Uh, yep, yep. Uh -huh. You know, yeah. and I, again, I was like, 
14. Do you know Jackie Jones? No, I don't really remember any, mm. you know, uh, much of Pro-Am. Other yeah. than I think I won Pro-Am board in my collection, just a deck, you know. Uh -huh. uh, but, uh, yeah, I was just a kid who was happy somebody gave me some free skateboards yeah. and told me, we have practice at Skatopia on Monday nights. And I was right. like, I tell my dad, we have skateboard practice. And sometimes we practice at Sadlands. So we would go... Uh, I would ride the craters and stuff like that, and the freestyle guys would do freestyle on the basketball courts next yeah. to it, and it was yep. like that was uh, that was pro am team practice, um, and then eventually I, Gail Webb put me on Powerflex, oh. you know, um, and I did a little stint with Inaway's pool service with Wally, but then he sort of disappeared. <laughs> he flooded me supports, and then I couldn't find him, so <laughs> so I asked to ride for Powerflex, uh, and then I actually rode for Powerflex. The irony about me doing Powerflex now, I rode for Powerflex when it disappeared, okay. so I was on the team when Gail Webb was like going. I can't give you any more skateboards. There's something going on between the partners, and I'm not, I mean, I can't get boards right now. And I didn't know the story at all. I was a kid, and yeah. you know, I learned later in life that you know Bob Ballou had two partners, and there was a, there was a, a, mis, a, a disagreement on the stock ownership, and the other guys wouldn't fix it, and mm. Bob owned the trademark, so Bob just went to court and got an injunction and stopped them from making it. Okay. So the company ceased okay. right then and there because he's the the trademark holder who didn't have the money to keep it going mm -hmm. stopped the other partners from doing shut it, it so it just basically shut it down mm -hmm. so at that time um steve kathy asked me to ride for gns oh. so um and that was i mean at the time that was like shangri-la are you yes. kidding i mean get on gns i mean like yes. you know um what was that like what did you what it was, was unbelievable yeah. unbelievable i mean you're talking a kid who you know i got a, I got a, you know boards wheels like that from all the other brands like yeah. that but but gns not only was that was steve kathy and pineapple and dennis martinez and all these legends oh, and all dude. the skateboarder magazines yeah. that i opened and that was like yeah. the dream of you know of actually getting up the ladder and then the first box they sent me was like you know because i'd get it like a t-shirt from the other guys yeah. right that's so the first box they get from gns has like six or seven t-shirts in it <laughs> and like two or three sets of wheels and oh, you know man. boards and like bearings and i'm like damn you know my mom and dad are like seriously like you know now wait a second they're giving this to you you know what i mean like really you know you're not stealing this right you know like yeah. no they they you know and then you know um because all the other teams were at the time i was on like a, a lower level am kid mm -hmm. um so we didn't really do trips together. I did some demos for Gail Webb, like at Westminster Mall on the on the ramp and stuff like that. Uh -huh. A few of those, um, but then GNS was the time when I was like, no, Steve Cathy was the team manager. I mean, there's a there's a contest at Big O at Venice, or, you know, whatever's Marina Del Rey. Yeah. He would come by and pick you up, and he had Billy Ruff in the car, and we'd get Neil uh, Blender, and and we'd be staying yeah. in a hotel, and you know, it's like so when you're uh, 16 and people are putting you up in hotels and you're going to skate, rad. you know, think yeah, you know, they're buying meals for you, and uh, but did you know, you know Skip did um, uh, I didn't know Skip Disney for yeah. sure. Yeah, and Marty, um, Marty Martin, the three of those guys used to hang out. Yeah, Skip and Neil and Marty. I'm sure I know them all, but mm -hmm. I but I see a lot of guys. A lot of guys from that era. I forget there was Skip Disney. I definitely remember. Mm -hmm. um, I, I skated with Neil a lot just yeah. because he lived here, and, and I, I had a car and he didn't, so I drove I drove Neil everywhere. So thing, yeah. yeah, I'd go pick him up. We'd drive down to Del Mar or whatever. And a lot of people thought I lived in San Diego because I rode for GNS. Uh -huh. You know, right. uh, because a lot of everything was focused San Diego based, and we'd go down there a lot just to go to the factory, or whatever. But you know, but we were we were. So you go to do a contest, and it was just what nineteen seventy sex, drugs, rock and roll. Yeah, like a rock star. I mean, it was uh, you know, it, it was fun. My contest all started at, like I think the first contest I ever did was at La Mesa Skate Park down in San Diego, mm -hmm. um, and I remember speaking of Steve Cathy and Dennis Martinez and all those guys. Uh, I, I I rode for Pro Am. I remember doing a frontside air in the pool, and I speared my board like 20 feet up in the air and came down on my knees. And all of a sudden, I heard like, oh, my board landed right in my back. 
Ooh. It like speared me between the shoulder blades. Ooh. And I remember looking up and seeing Steve Cathy and Dennis Martinez, and they're like, and I'm kind of like laughing, smiling, like looking the other way, like, oh my God, I can't believe he did that. And I'm like, my heroes up there are like, I just embarrassed myself in front of my heroes. And this is, you know, two years before I ever wrote for them. Uh -huh. They really even knew who I was. But I just grabbed my board and ran back up and dropped back in and finished it. I remember the next morning, I like couldn't move my arms. <laughs> it was like, you know, uh, the adrenaline got me through it. But uh, yeah, I did pretty good. I mean, obviously, like, like I had these up for years in the uh, in the rafters in a box, and I just threw them on my desk. All these old, you know, cool. you yeah, know, whatever. Use them and have them all stored. Well, yeah. Them. I mean, what's the point? I mean, it's skateboarding. It's funny, you know. Yeah. I'm definitely, uh, um, yeah. But I, you know, also I came from a really conservative family. I wasn't. I wasn't. Uh, I didn't skate as much as most guys. I just never really could. I couldn't get to the skate park every single yeah, day. Yeah, structure. Um, yeah, dinner was at six o'clock. If yep. I came home at six o one, I just didn't eat. You know what I mean? Yep. It was like you might as well not come home. So I, like, I literally would get on the bus. The fishbowl was. I lived off Brookhurst and Edinger, and I would, I would get off school and I'd go to the bus stop and I'd get on the bus and it was about eight miles up Brookhurst to, to the fishbowl and I would get there at three o'clock and skate for a couple hours. As the bowl lady used to charge like fifty cents an hour to skate, mm -hmm. you know, and it was a, a pool and we would ride it and I would just make sure. Oh my god, I got to get on five clock bus because man if I didn't get at that bus stop on Brookhurst and get into my house before six I was in trouble yes. you know yeah. and the funny thing is my parents didn't know I went to Anaheim or like that you know it's like there was no you know um it was definitely a different that's era. kind of crazy if you came yeah. from that kind of a, mine weren't conservative but they were very you know set in their ways and rigid and kind of and yeah I saw some wild shit I mean yeah yeah yeah, there was some, a lot of it I've learned, I mean, that was one thing with, with like, Taters, Jerry Hurtado. Yeah. Um, I got to know him a lot more near his death than I did back in the day, mm. because, again, he was caught up with the cool guys back then, you know what mm -hmm. I mean? He, and, he, and he told me about the stories he told me sitting here the last couple of years before he died about the owner of Big O and freebasing and had cocaine and all the parties. I'm like, I knew nothing about it. I was just a 15-year-old kid, showed up, skated for four hours and left.